Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we shall be looking at the Egyptian film The Night of Counting the Years from 1969. This is one that I've been meaning to get around to for a few months now and have really been looking forward to covering. I will also admit it is one that has intimidated me slightly as it is far from an average mummy movie. Not only does it have no supernatural elements, but it is also based on a true story which is both absolutely fascinating, so I wanted to do it justice basically, but it's also required a lot of research. First things first, I would like to thank Jules Radcliffe for suggesting this film way back in May. It was a film that immediately piqued my interest and one that I knew I had to cover. In terms of the format for this episode, although it's the same as usual, there's going to be a few little tweaks here and there. For a start, the first section, the background information, is going to be a lot longer than usual. This is because ultimately... The history of the making of this film is really interesting, and it does help with the appreciation of the film. Then, instead of just one section on historical accuracy, there's actually going to be three sections. This is because it's the only way I could think of doing it to cover the film in any justifiable degree. I shall go into the breakdown of these sections a little bit more when we arrive at that point in the episode. And then finally... As usual, we shall have a review section where I shall just talk about what I liked in the film, what I disliked, and just rate the film overall as well. But before then, it is time for my dramatic intro. Right. Due to the passing of your father, the leader of the Horobat tribe, your uncles lay you in on the family's terrible secret. For the last ten years, you have unknowingly been profiting from tomb robbery, as your family discovered a long-lost Egyptian cache full of some of the most famous pharaohs in history, as well as many other important individuals. Now, you and your brother are in a tricky situation. You do not want to make your living in such an immoral way. But to turn your back on this life is to turn your back on your family and all that you know. The night stretches on as you wander through the many ancient ruins that litter the area. As you look upon them, you think back through time to the centuries that passed. As you figure out what to do, you spend the night counting the years.
So, as mentioned in the introduction, this section is going to be longer than usual. This is both because the production and history surrounding the making of it are actually really interesting, and it also really helps with the appreciation of the film as well. First things first, as kind of already mentioned during the dramatic intro, this film is about the royal cash which was found by thieves at Delbakery near modern-day Luxor. More specifically, it's about the moral conundrum of the fictional characters of Wallace, the main character, and his brother after they find out about this. It is also about the investigation by the Bulak Museum in Cairo in 1881. To begin with, Roberto Rossellini, a well-regarded Italian director, was initially set to direct the film. But due to the breakout of the Six-Day War, which stretched between the 5th to the 10th of June 1967, in which a coalition of Egypt, Syria and Jordan went to war against Israel, Rossellini was forced to leave Egypt. As such, instead, Shadi Abel Salam, the man who initially came up with the idea in the first place, took the position of director instead. Although Salam had never directed a full-length film before, he had worked in the industry. Despite not being credited, there are several reports that he worked on the 1963 film Cleopatra, which famously starred Elizabeth Taylor. He also worked on the 1966 Polish film Pharaoh about the fictional ruler Ramesses XII. This is a film that at some point I would like to cover on this podcast. I also plan on covering Cleopatra at some point, thinking about it. In fact, Salam himself recounted about how whilst he was living in Poland, on one especially cold winter night, he was feeling homesick for Egypt, and it was then that his mind wandered to the royal cash at Deal Bakary. So ultimately, the beginning of the concept of this film came when he was living in Poland. During the making of this film, Salam used many left-field techniques. For a start, although most Egyptian cinema was performed in the more modern Upper Egyptian Arabic, instead, A Night of Counting the Years was performed entirely in classical Arabic. Although Salam did go back and forth on which dialect to use, he chose classical Arabic because of its timelessness as it was the type used in the Quran and considered a sacred dialect. Although Egyptian cinema is one of the oldest forms of cinema in the African continent, and just generally the Arabic world thinking about it, even rivalling Hollywood in some parts of the world between the 40s and 60s, by the end of the 60s, Egyptian cinema was becoming stale and formulaic. A large part of this was due to censorship and restrictions placed on filmmakers. As a result, many Arabic filmmakers were beginning to rebel against this censorship, and Salam was no exception. This is likely due to the fact that he was born in Alexandria in 1930 to a wealthy family. Not only was his father a lawyer, but both of his parents were of a more liberal mindset, and this likely played into his worldview and his disdain for restrictions. On top of this, due to Egypt's defeat in the Six-Day War, the very war that had led to Rossellini, the originally intended director to leave the country, many Egyptians were more demoralised than ever, and Salam seemed to have viewed this as Egyptians losing their identity. For Salam, the night of counting the years was a chance to try and help mend Egypt's wounded pride and highlight the greatness of their ancestry. The general moral here is that you don't rebuild pride by desecrating the tombs of your ancestors, as well as their traditions and memories. Instead, you must respect your ancestors and guard your heritage. In fact, Salam himself stated, I think the people of my country are ignorant of our history, and I feel that it is my mission to make them know some of it. I regard cinema not as a consumerist art, but as a historical document for the next generations. This statement, to me at least, shows that this film is very much his way of proving that Egypt's history is something to be proud of. I mean, to be honest, I can't really argue with him on this point. This theme is very much the core lesson of the entire film, as Wanis, the main character, takes this approach, not only refusing to rob the tombs of his ancestors, but also bravely standing up to his family, even when it could cost him everything. Although Rossellini, the man originally intended to direct this film, had been forced to flee the country, 
he remained an avid supporter of Salam and even became the producer of the film. In fact, without him, this film would almost certainly have never been made, and he even managed to get Thawatakasha, I really hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, <laughs> the uh, Egyptian Minister of Culture at the time, to add further funds to the film. It is also thanks to Rossellini that the film was shown internationally in Europe, as throughout 1970, the film was shown at multiple film festivals and even won multiple awards, such as the Georges Sadoul Awards of the French Cinématique. Interestingly, despite actually being an Egyptian film, the film did not get a general release in Egypt until February 3rd, 1975, so six years after its release. And unfortunately, the release coincided with the death of the Egyptian contrato singer Um Kalsum. Her popularity was such that the entire country went into mourning, with about four million people taking to the streets of Cairo to observe her funeral. Bear in mind this was 1975 by the way. There were only about 6.5 million people living in Cairo at that time, so this is an insane amount of people. This meant on its Egyptian release, the night of counting the stars was massively overshadowed, and sadly as a result, the film quickly fell into obscurity and was soon more or less forgotten. Aside from a few minor revivals, the film remained largely forgotten until 2009, when it was carefully restored by the Italian film archive Cinematica di Bologna. And this was done with the support of the Egyptian Ministry of Culture. Since then, the film has seen a huge resurgence and even ranks as one of the greatest Egyptian films ever made. In fact, it was ranked at number three in the top 100 Egyptian films of all time, right behind The Land from 1970 and The Will from 1939. One thing I find quite funny about this film is in Egyptian, it's actually translated as The Mummy. So the three most important films in Egyptian history are The Something, The Something and The Something. <laughs> I'm not mocking Egyptian cinema, I'm sure those films are all really good, but they're not the most inventive names. In terms of the film itself, although Salam played around with many different genres, he eventually settled on an eerie, almost dreamlike approach to the film, with stunning cinematography which very much highlighted the desert winds. The film's composer, Mario Nashimbeni, made an avant-garde style score to accompany this, giving the film a timeless, unique feel. In terms of the cast, a large part of it comprised of locals of the film's setting, Kerna, which is a selection of villages on the west coast of the Nile, opposite the modern-day city of Luxor. It was stated that these locals were picked due to their interesting and appropriate faces, which is just such a weird way of stating something. And let's face it, they were probably also admittedly picked because they were cheap. Outside of that, Shafiq Nur el-Den plays Ayub, a wealthy dealer in illegal antiquities. He is the black market dealer who the Horobat tribe, the tribe who are stealing from the cash in the film, deal with. Then we have Nadia Lutfi, who plays Zina. Nadia is one of the stars of the film and seems to have shared many of Salam's liberal ideas. In fact, right up until her death in 2020, she was involved in liberal politics and even now is considered a cultural icon. Finally, we have Ahmed Mari, who plays the main character, Wanis. This is Ahmed's first ever role, and he was largely picked due to his large eyes, as even in the film it is stated he looks like an ancient Egyptian statue. Interestingly, the name Wanis was actually based on Wenes, the final pharaoh of the 5th dynasty. This pharaoh was also known as Unas, and if that name sounds familiar to you, well, coincidentally, this may be because I spoke about him a fair amount a couple of episodes ago on my episode on Prisoners of the Sun. Anyway, that about wraps up this section of the episode. We have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. And for this segment, as I've kind of already alluded to, I'll be splitting it into three parts. The first of these will deal with the actual events of the discovery of the royal cache at Deir al-Bakhari. I should probably just quickly say that the cache's name is technically TT320, 
meaning Theban Tomb 320. But for the sake of simplicity, I shall just call it the Royal Cash in this episode. In the second part, we shall travel back in time to when these bodies were moved into the cache in the first place, just to examine why that happened. And finally, in the third part, I shall simply go over the film, looking at the similarities and differences, and just looking at the historical accuracy overall, as I normally do in this podcast. Okay, let's get on with it. In terms of the actual events, it is probably worth noting that no one entirely knows what happened, and for a lot of this time, we have to rely on hearsay. For a start, the tomb was initially found by the Abad el Razul family in 1871. Ahmed Razul claimed that he initially found the cache when one of his goats fell down the shaft, and although this story is possible, it is also worth noting that he liked to tell the story that most pleased his audience. On top of that, this story was retold countless times by the surrounding villages, and so it is unknown how much it has changed with time. Either way, when the Rizal family found the cache, their eyes would have been met with rooms absolutely covered in ancient coffins of some of the most famous pharaohs of all time, including the likes of Seti I, Thutmose III, and Ramesses II. However, outside of that, there were also coffins of bodies of royal wives and princesses, as well as some of the high priests of Amun from the 21st dynasty, including Panijan I and II. And it probably is just worth saying that the high priests of Amun during the 21st dynasty were on par in terms of importance with the actual pharaoh. Basically, whilst the pharaoh ruled in northern Egypt, the high priest of Amun ruled over southern Egypt. The Rizal family then began to profit off of the dead by desecrating these burials and selling the precious amulets and items on the black market. Although we cannot be certain that they discovered the tomb in 1871, this date does seem likely, as the first of the items to be discovered on the black market by the authorities were uncovered in 1874. The first items to grab the attention of the authorities were the funeral goods belonging to the Theban priestly royal house of the 21st dynasty. These caught the attention of the director of the Service of Antiquities of the Bulak Museum in Cairo, a French Egyptologist by the name of Maspero. And by early 1881, a friend of Maspero, named Charles Edwin Wilbur, managed to trace the artefacts to Luxor, where a consular agent had been working with the Razul family to sell the items. It is through this consular agent that suspicions first arose about the Razul family. In April 1881, Maspero travelled upriver from Cairo to Luxor, Maspiro had Ahmed Razul arrested and brought onto the museum's steamer boat for questioning. However, at this point, Ahmed denied all. Maspiro therefore headed home seemingly having failed in his mission, but the arrest would have later connotations as it essentially led to the Razul brothers squabbling. This is basically because Ahmed believed that because of the questioning, the time he spent in prison, and to be honest with you, the very likely torture he endured, that he deserved half of all of the spoils from the tomb, rather than the one fifth he was currently getting. As such, he threatened to go to the authorities if he did not receive this. However, because of the squabbling, it was not actually Ahmed who eventually went to the authorities. It was his brother, Muhammad. In June 29th, 1881, he went to the authorities and won amnesty by confessing. He also made it known that the brothers were very aware of the importance of the find. By the time of this confession, Maspero was already on his way back to Paris on private business and would not be back in Egypt until September. As such, the task of discovering the tomb fell on the German Egyptologist and assistant curator, Emile Brugsch. Emile travelled to Luxor with a team consisting of several people including most noticeably for this film, Ahmed Athendi Kemal, who was one of the first ever Egyptian Egyptologists. Before they arrived, the authorities had already searched the Rizul property and found many ancient artefacts from the tomb, these including papyri from the 21st dynasty, 
and the canopic equipment made for Queen Amos Nefertari of the 18th dynasty. On the morning of Wednesday the 6th July 1881, Muhammad Razul led Emil and his team to a small valley below the cliffs at Deir Bakari, the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut. At the head of the valley, hidden behind a large boulder, lay the head of the shaft. Here, at last, was the entrance to the secret tomb. Interestingly, Emil seemed to have been on edge when entering the tomb, and even brought his rifle with him. This was not just due to concerns over the reaction from the Razul family. It was also because there were some villages in the area that were also benefiting indirectly from the thefts from the tomb, as well ultimately it was boosting the local economy. According to Emil himself, when he entered the tomb, he spent two hours exploring. However, his accounts here are very rushed and vague, and it does seem a bit unlikely. To me at least, it appears as if he was scared, and he wanted to get the job done as quickly as possible. I mean, regardless of whether his mission here was honourable or not, he was essentially taking away people's livelihoods here. And amazingly, people don't react kindly to that. According to Emil himself, he said this, Nearly the whole of the night was occupied by hiring men to help remove the precious relics from their hidden place. There was but little sleep in Luxor that night. Early the next morning, 300 Arabs had been employed under my direction. However, once again there are conflicting accounts here, as later, Maspero talked about a letter sent to him by Emil. In this letter he stated that 200 rather than 300 people from the local area had been employed by him. Either way, they had ultimately been hired to help quickly remove the artefacts and coffins from the cache. In fact, Emil had all of the coffins, over 50 in total, removed from the cache in just 48 hours. But unfortunately, during this process, very little documentation was done. Also, because of the haste of the job, quite a few of the coffins received damage, as they were dragged roughly across the ground, accidentally knocked against the wall of the cache, and hoisted out of the tomb with ropes without any protection whatsoever. On top of this, interestingly, when the bodies were later examined, many of them were found to be in different stages of composition. Many of the bandages had been deliberately ripped, and not just in modern times, but in antiquity as well, as people had tried to get their precious amulets within. The final point that's worth noting here is that the bodies ranged from the 17th to the 21st dynasty, and most of these individuals had their own tombs in places such as the Valley of the Kings. So you may be asking, what were these bodies doing in this cache rather than in their own tombs? Well, you better listen on to find out. Okay, so in this section, I'm just going to go over why the bodies were in the royal cache, as opposed to in their own tombs. There are actually two reasons for this. One very overt and official reason, and the second is an unofficial hidden reason. Our story starts at the end of the 20th dynasty, specifically between the reigns of Ramesses IX and Ramesses XI. During these two reigns, there were several investigations into tomb robbery in the Theban necropolis, most notably at sites such as the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and the tombs of the nobles. Although tomb robbery had been going on long before the reign of Ramesses IX, it is noticeable that there was a huge spike at this time, and it seems to have coincided with the rise in grain prices. Basically, Bearing in mind that grain was the staple of the Egyptian diet and was also hugely necessary for things like trade, the price had increased 12-fold and as a result people were starving. Interestingly, as I have spoken about before, the majority of the thieves seemed to have come from the village of Deir al-Medina, whose inhabitants were tasked with the building of the royal tombs. As such, not only did they know the layout of the tombs as well as their locations, but they also had the necessary skills to break into them, as they were the ones to create them in the first place. More to the point, this population lived in a remote part of the desert and were reliant on the local temples for supplies. Unsurprisingly, 
As the price of grain increased, the less the local temples were willing to give them, forcing the inhabitants to take drastic action. When it came to the tomb robberies during the reign of Ramesses XI, once again starvation would have been a huge motivation. During his reign, there was a year which was known as the Year of the Hyena. This was, once again, a time of extreme hunger, and according to Selina Ikram, a very well-known Egyptologist, the name could mean that people were so hungry that they would even eat hyenas. Though I'd imagine this means in a more metaphorical state rather than them actually eating hyenas. However, on top of that, there was also a man named Panisi, who was the Vicaroy of Kush in Nubia, so modern-day Sudan. Basically, it is not entirely known why he acted the way he did, but he rebelled against the high priest of Amon, who at the time was a man named Amenhotep who lived in Thebes. Panisi came to Thebes with a large army and essentially forced him out. According to the Egyptologist Cyril Aldred, the troops of Panisi also looted the tombs in order to fill up the war chest for a campaign further north into Egypt. And indeed, there is physical evidence to suggest this, as a fair amount of the theft must have been done by a large force. For instance, in the tomb of Ramesses V and VI, the lid of the sarcophagus has been broken in two, and black streaks run down the lid. The black streaks are essentially the oils that we use during the embalming process, and this shows that the original theft must have happened shortly after the burial, before these oils had a chance to dry. However, although the lid of the sarcophagus is smashed, the oils do not seem to seep into these breaks, suggesting that it was broken at a later date, after the oils had already dried. Also, the sarcophagus itself has been tipped over. Aldred argues quite correctly that a small number of thieves would have stood no chance of tipping over this sarcophagus, and this would take a large force to achieve. And so, this second robbery was likely done by the troops of Panisi, who were looting the tombs. Either way, the point is, during the 20th dynasty, there was a huge issue of tomb robbery, and so when the 21st dynasty came around, this was used as an excuse to move the bodies from the Valley of the Kings and Queens out of their tombs, and many of them were taken in secret to the royal cache at Dalbakari. So the official reason for this moving of the bodies was to protect them from tomb robbery. However, it is also likely that there was an ulterior motive here as well, as it essentially allowed for official tomb robbery as well, as many of the coffins and precious items such as amulets were taken off of the bodies and repurposed for new owners. Interestingly, this also coincided with a new form of burial in Egypt. Basically, although they were ruling as Egyptians, the 21st dynasty was essentially Libyan, and as such, some Libyan traditions were beginning to seep into Egyptian society. One of these being the use of family burials. I'm not going to go into how Libyans came to rule Egypt here, as that would essentially be an episode in its own right. But if people want me to do an episode on this, please do write in and say. My email address can be found in the episode description below, and you can also find me on Instagram. If there is enough interest, I will happily make that episode. But basically put, during the 21st dynasty, Many of the bodies from the Theban necropolis were moved to the Kash Adal Bakari, officially in order to protect them from tomb robbery, but also because the move allowed for legal usurpation of funeral items such as coffins and amulets. And if you had not already guessed, this is the very same cache that the Razul family found almost 3,000 years later. Okay, we have now arrived at the final part of the historical accuracy section. So in this part, I'm just going to go over the film, saying what parts of it are accurate and which parts are not. To start with, as the opening credits roll, we see the coffin of Queen Tia. I am not sure why this particular coffin was used, as it was not found in the royal cache, and was instead found in KV-35, which originally was a tomb of Amenhotep II. Though, interestingly, she was actually the mother of Akhenaten, and likely the grandmother of Tutankhamun. As such, originally she was probably buried in the royal tomb at Amarna, some 400 kilometres to the north of Luxor originally. 
I'm not going to say that this is historically inaccurate, but I am not sure why they have chosen this particular coffin, as opposed to one that was actually found in the royal cache. After this, we hear a man who we quickly find out is supposed to be Maspiro, the French Egyptologist mentioned earlier. He basically says that if an Egyptian lost their name, they lost their very identity. He's actually correct here. Names were incredibly important in ancient Egypt and even held religious significance. It was believed that if after your death your name was forgotten, you would also cease to exist in the afterlife. As mentioned in previous episodes, this was why particularly hated individuals would have their names erased from inscriptions. It was a way of making them cease to exist, which for the majority of Egyptian history was the ultimate punishment. However, one interesting early change to the narrative here is that Maspiro in the film is not French and is instead played and portrayed as an Egyptian. There is also no sign of the German Egyptologist who originally led the expedition, Emile Brugst. Instead, Ahmed Effendi Kamel is shown to be the leader of the expedition, and there is also no hint that Maspero is going off to France. Instead, he more or less just accepts Kamel's suggestion to go to Luxor, and then is not seen for the rest of the film. However, on the upside, they do specify in the film that they know about the tomb robbery because of the items appearing on the black market, and they go on to talk about the funeral papyrus of Penugium I. Although this is more accurate, as far as I am aware, it was actually the funeral papyri of Penugium II that initially caught the attention of the authorities. Shortly after this, we arrive just outside of Luxor, near the village of Kerner, where the film is set. Here, and indeed a few times in the film, it is claimed that the Valley of the Kings holds the pharaohs of the 18th, 19th and 20th dynasties. And then it goes on to say that they were pillaged long ago when pharaonic Egypt collapsed. There is in fairness some truth to this. Firstly, the majority of the bodies in the Valley of the Kings do indeed come from the 18th, 19th and 20th dynasties. As mentioned earlier, the tombs were looted throughout the 20th dynasty and then in the 21st dynasty, the bodies were moved to the royal cache. Although pharaonic Egypt would continue for another thousand years or so after this point, it is worth noting that the 21st dynasty was part of what is known as the Third Intermediate Period. This was a time period where Egypt no longer ruled over itself, and instead those in charge were Libyan, or at least between the 21st and 24th dynasties. Therefore, although it is debatable whether Egypt actually collapsed here necessarily, it definitely was a time of change in ancient Egypt. It was certainly a time where Egypt was more inward-looking, and they were losing influence outside of their own land, and in fact, it would not be until the next dynasty, with Shishong I, that Egypt would once again head out of Egypt in any major way. It is also worth noting that although this film is based on a true story, they have changed the name of the family. Instead of the Razul family, they are the Horabat tribe in this film. Essentially, in the film, after the death of their father, Wanis and his brother are let in on the tribe's secret. This secret is a royal cash from which the tribe are profiting. Interestingly, it is made known that the majority of the tribe do not know that the tribe is making their money this way. And what's really cool here is that this does seem to be the case with the Razul family as well. Outside of the two brothers, Muhammad and Ahmed, not many of the family seem to have been aware of it. A little later in the film, it is claimed that each of the pharaohs in the Valley of the Kings had a temple dedicated to them. This is actually true. Basically, as well as their tombs, each pharaoh in the New Kingdom had a mortuary temple with a dedicated priesthood. This is because after the pharaoh's death, they would not only become a god in the afterlife, usually as they became part of Osiris, but they would also need to be sustained in order to survive in the afterlife, so they would need things such as offerings. In the Old Kingdom, the mortuary temple would have been part of their tomb. However, by the New Kingdom, the pharaohs had begun to hide their tombs to stop potential tomb robbery, and so it was necessary for their mortuary temple to be further away and separate. Some of these mortuary temples can be found in Luxor, and they include the Ramesseum, which belongs to Ramesses II, the mortuary temple of Seti I, 
and my personal favourite, Medina Habu, which belonged to Ramesses III. In Egypt, this was the first building I saw that made my jaw drop. It is truly magnificent and I recommend anyone who's visiting Luxor to go there. Amongst other pretty good claims, the film also correctly states that Seti I was the father of Ramesses II. Once again, this is correct, and Ramesses II was also Seti I's direct successor. The film goes on to state that one of the bodies found in a royal cache was Amos I, and that all of the bodies in the cache came from between the 17th to the 21st dynasties. Both of these statements are correct. Finally, the film states that it was the priesthood of Amon at Thebes that was responsible for moving the bodies from the Valley of the Kings to the Royal Cache. Once again, this is accurate. It seems likely that the Royal Cache was originally intended to be the burial place of Panujan II and his family. Panujan II was a high priest of Amon, and the priests of Amon in general were also responsible for moving and protecting many of the other bodies in the Theban necropolis. So basically, there is a lot of little statements throughout this film that are correct. The film also talks about how the bodies were moved into the cache to stop potential tomb robbery. However, the film does not talk at all about how this moving of the bodies was also used as a form of legal tomb usurpation, or how many of the coffins and amulets were also reused. It is worth mentioning, however, that the film was released in 1969, and so it may just be the case that they hadn't really figured out this ulterior motive yet. It should also be pointed out that there are one or two errors. For instance, when the Egyptologists find the tomb, they claim that there are 40 sarcophagi inside. Firstly, there are actually over 50 coffins found in the royal cache, and secondly, they most certainly are coffins, not sarcophagi. This is true for both what they are showing in the film, and for what was found in the actual royal cache. As I feel like I've stated countless times by this point in the podcast, coffins are what the deceased are buried in. Sarcophagi are instead large boxes in which the coffins are placed. And you may be thinking, maybe this is just a mistranslation in the subtitles. The word for coffin in Arabic is naish. The word for sarcophagi in Arabic is tawabit. Here, they are most certainly saying tower bit, so this is not a mistranslation. Also, just in general, the story of the thieves here is pretty much made up. Wanis and his brother are both fictional characters. Further, in real life, Mespiro headed to the area first and ended up imprisoning and torturing Ahmed. It was this that initially made Ahmed and Mohammed fall out, which eventually led to Mohammed giving up the location of the tomb to the authorities. In this film, however, Wanis and his brother are instead appalled by the tomb robbery and are put in a moral conundrum. It is this that ultimately leads to Wanis giving up the tomb's location. So as stated, this is a fictitious version of the story, though it should probably be noted that the actual official versions of the events are quite uncertain also. Overall, therefore, there are a lot of decisions here that do make the film less accurate, though often they seem to have been done deliberately. For instance, Maspero is depicted as an Egyptian in the film, and the German Egyptologist Emil is all but absent, allowing Kamal to take the centre stage. This has clearly been done as Shadi Abdel Salam, the director, wanted his work to instil pride in his fellow Egyptians for their country. Further, the actual storyline here, which has Wanis and his brother going against their family to protect their ancestry, has also been done to highlight the importance of respecting your genealogy and to guard their heritage. Ultimately, Salam had an agenda, and it really doesn't matter in this section whether his agenda was honourable or not. Either way, it does lead to inaccuracies. There are also just some genuinely unforced mistakes, such as Kamal claiming that there are 40 sarcophagi in the tomb when there were actually over 50 coffins, not sarcophagi. However, in fairness, outside of this, the film does a pretty good job. It correctly states that the priests of Amon were responsible for moving the bodies to the royal cache. It is right that the pharaohs of the New Kingdom typically had mortuary temples that were separate from their tombs, and it is correct that the bodies found in the cache dated between the 17th and the 21st dynasty. 
So overall, I would say that this film does a far better than average job when it comes to historical accuracy. Though it should still be remembered that this is a film at the end of the day, and the director and writer did have a strong agenda, which he did let guide his creation. Therefore, although better than most films, there are still plenty of inaccuracies here. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here, as usual, I shall just talk about what the film does well and poorly. And although this is a particularly hard film to rate, I shall do my best. To begin with, it is worth noting that the first time I watched this film, I did so without looking into the background information. And I will admit, even without doing that, the film did have an air of importance. It feels as if every shot Every word, every facial expression has been meticulously planned out. I will admit, on first watch, I assumed that this was because the director felt he had something to prove. It was, after all, his first ever feature-length film. But after reading the background information, I do wonder if it was because he made it his mission to instill pride back into the Egyptian population. I can't say for certain, obviously, but I'm guessing he saw great value in his ultimate goal, and therefore saw this is worth his time. Moving on, love it or hate it, there is no denying that the film is incredibly striking. Whether it is the black clothing of the Horobat tribe against the lightness of the desert sand, or the choice of the actors who, according to the director himself, were picked because of their interesting faces. What a strange way, I, I still can't get over that. Everything here grabs the viewer's attention and helps it to stand out in a big way from other films. And even when it comes to the eerie music, which, due to its uniqueness, not only makes the film timeless, but also keeps the viewer on edge whilst almost contradictorily making the viewer feel as if they are in a dreamlike state. I will admit, when it does come to the music, when I first heard it, I absolutely hated it. But as the film went on, I realise that it's oddly perfect for the film. Although the film is extremely slow, this is never done without a deliberate air, and leads to a slow burn as the film goes on, as the tension grows. It really gives the impression that the film could go left field at any second, and as such, at times, it is really hard to take your eyes off of the screen. It is especially eerie towards the end of the film, as for the last half an hour or so, Wanis, the main character, is wandering around with a large cut on his head, with dried blood plastered to his skin. I honestly found this unsettling in the best way, and there was a large part of me that wanted to lean through the screen, just so I could kind of wipe it off. There are also quite a few subtle points that I did not pick up on right away, and many of these do not sound like anything special, but the way they are implemented was done incredibly well. For instance, the people at the museum and those from the city talk about the history of ancient Egypt, usually in quite accurate terms. Meanwhile, the uncles of the Horobat tribe talk about the bodies in the cache as if they are just pieces of dried wood now and use this to justify their actions. They speak in quite a blunt way that is seemingly supposed to be common sense, but like a corrupt politician, you have to look past their tone to the words they are actually saying, and even past that to see how they are basically making stuff up to benefit themselves. Then we have Wamas, who is portrayed as a genuinely good and brave man. His thoughts on these bodies is not necessarily led by learning, but instead by a mixture of conscience and speculation that almost comes off as a bit wishy-washy. This, of course, is because Wamas is supposed to be less educated in such matters than those from the museum, but the way he speaks does make it feel as if he has been thinking about these points for many years. It never feels two-dimensional. And even when it comes to Wanis's motivations for turning his back on his family and their way of life, it is clear he is being guided not by education, but by his instincts and by his conscience. Although he is not educated, he is clearly intelligent. And for me at least, this really indicates the subtle differences between smartness and intelligence two words that are often used interchangeably. For me at least, smartness is someone who is well learned, whilst intelligence is someone who has a natural ability. 
I feel that this film highlights this subtle difference better than any film I have ever seen. There are also a few parts of this film that seem to parallel ancient Egyptian myths. I am uncertain whether this is me reading too much into it, but I find it interesting that this is essentially the story of two brothers fighting against their uncles after the death of their father. Although not exactly the same, it gives me a similar vibe to the contendings of Set and Horus, one of the most well-known of all the Egyptian myths, as in that myth, Horus battles his uncle Set for the throne of Egypt after the death of his father, Osiris. Shadi Abdel Salam, the director, did specify that Ahmed Mari, who plays the main character Wanis, was picked specifically because of his large eyes. In the contendings of Set and Horus, one of the key parts of the entire story is when Set pulls out Horus's eye. Then there is the fact that the main piece of treasure in the film is quite literally a Wajet eye, which is otherwise known as the Eye of Horus, the very eye in the story that Set pulls out. However, the symbolism doesn't even end there. The Wajet eye was supposed to be a symbol of healing, and what was Salam trying to do with this film? He was trying to restore pride in the Egyptians after it had been tainted in the Six Day War. He was literally trying to heal them. Now, of course, this may all just be a big string of coincidences, but there just seems to be one too many comparisons for that to be the case. In all honesty, I think what we have here is symbolism on a genius level. Interestingly, as well as being the writer and director, Salam also helped build many of the props, as he had worked in his job on other films. I will admit, the props in this film are exceptional, and there were times where I was second-guessing whether I was seeing archival shots of actual Egyptian coffins. Not only do they look spectacular, but even looking at the hieroglyphs, they can be read, and you can tell that the real coffins have been copied with meticulous detail. Even when it comes to the cache itself, there is one particular shot where they are looking at a cluster of coffins covering every square inch of the floor. I also found it interesting how Salam emphasised that the majority of the Harab tribe did not know how their family was making their money. They did not know that they were profiting from the dead, and when they find out towards the end of the film, they are disgusted and horrified and lose all respect in the uncles. Not only is this reminiscent of the Razul family, where most of them were not aware either, but I also think it leans into the thought that there is danger in ignorance. And, I mean, okay, I'm not sure if Salam intended this last thought, but it is what sprung to my mind at least. I will say, however, that although the film was deliberately very slow to build tension, there were long periods of time where it was far too slow. I mean, there was legitimately one point where I thought I'd paused the film. I went to the toilet, and when I came back, the film was still playing. It turns out the character had just been standing still for about 20 seconds, presumably thinking intently. In general, I felt the pace was more justified in the second half of the film, when the tension was nearing its apex. But for the first half, there were times where it just did not feel necessary at all. Wallace could have been at McDonald's trying to pick between a chicken burger and chicken nuggets and the film would have still been trying to make you feel tense as he took 20 minutes to decide. Sometimes, such an approach is just not appropriate, and it does make the film feel very one-note at times. I will also say that the film does far, 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 far too much telling and not showing. This approach really made me glaze over at points, and there was one or two points well, as a result, I was completely lost. Considering that this is not the most complicated of tales, that is almost impressive, though definitely not in a good way. In terms of the reviews for this film, they are positive. Although there is no critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, which considering this is one of the most important Egyptian films of all time, is shocking and, to be honest, pretty insulting. It has an audience score of 94%. Then on IMDb, it has a 7.7 .7 out of 10. The general consensus here is that it is a masterpiece of Egyptian cinema, sombre but gorgeous and striking, 
and that it is one of the most memorable films about Egypt ever made. However, on the downside, it is also described as too slow and too confusing. For myself, I find this one really hard to rate, and I will admit my opinion changed drastically after reading the background information. When going into this film blind, I was actually not that impressed, and I was ready to give it about a 5 out of 10. To me, it felt too slow, too confusing, and it seemed to be trying to go against everything that generally is considered good practice in cinema. Worst of all, it felt pretentious and in a weirdly empty way. However, after reading about the film, after seeing the real-life setbacks the film had, and the overall mission of the director, I have warmed to the film in a big way. I find the director went into this film with good intentions and I feel that his love and attention can be seen in every single little detail of the film. So my actual score is going to be 8 out of 10. If I am to be truthful, however, I do not feel that this score represents the film. But in all honesty, I do not think there is a score that can represent this film. So although I have given it an 8 out of 10, the point is strangely mute. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have, why not consider liking, subscribing, sharing on social media, all of that good stuff. And for this particular film, I would also just love to know how people found it, as it was a bit of a different episode. So please do email me using the email in the description below. And I can also be found on Instagram, as I said earlier in the episode. And join me next Monday, where we shall be looking at episode 5 of Moon Knight, labelled Asylum. I hope you all have a really good week, and see you then.